This is Top Landing Gear. Welcome to Top Landing Gear and to the first of our full-length guest interviews. In our opening episode, we featured the Spitfire and heard from Chief Pilot at the Boltby Academy, Jim Schofield. He has a wealth of experience, not just on the Spitfire, but on more than a hundred types. Asked about his favourite, well, his answer may surprise you. So here, as promised, is that interview in full, recorded at Goodwood Aerodrome in West Sussex just a week before lockdown. Asking the questions, a top landing gear's own resident pilot, James Cartner, pop star, Roy Stride, agricultural fencer, Jez Curling, and me, Rob Gill. Now remember, you can get in touch with us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, at Top Landing Gear. And however you're listening to us, please do leave a review, especially if you've enjoyed it. Thanks for listening. the Academy at Goodwood Airfield in Sussex. With us is Jim, who is the chief pilot here, Jim, and you take people on the most magnificent flights in two-seater Spitfires, don't you? We do, yeah. We fly them from uh, Leon Solent and Goodwood all through the summer and uh, also the spring and the autumn, so it's, it's a wonderful job to have. Tell us what you've been doing here today, in fact, over the past few weeks, in terms of getting new pilots qualified to fly the beautiful Spitfire. Well, before we start flying passengers at the beginning of the season and after the end of the season, we train customers to fly Spitfires. So it's not just staff training. We, we offer conversion to type for people on the street as well. So uh, it's yeah, a fascinating cross-section of society you get to meet and work with, and um, every day is a new adventure. I know, I, know, sorry, I know flying isn't cheap in general, but that No, it's not. Cheap. No, it really isn't. <laughs> no, it's not cheap, but um, we would say it's worth it. Yeah, obviously. How many people are training each year and how many Spitfires are there to go round? I mean, are these guys who are planning to buy a Spitfire or just want to fly a Spitfire that someone else provide them? Some people just want our blessing that they're um, able to fly a Spitfire to a solo standard. Others are targeting Spitfires they have in mind to go and fly or they've been promised a, a seat in one at some point. And then uh, everything in between as well. So... It's not cheap, but um, it's the only way to do it, really. Yeah. So we, we've got a professional, so he tells us, airline pilot in, in James here. He's also flown Pumas in the RAF, so he's got a few hours under his collar. Roy is just embarking on his PPL. That's so how, here at Goodwood, in oh, fact, wow. so how many hours would he need to get under his belt before he can even think about controlling, captaining a Spitfire? We recommend a 1,000 hours total. And 100 hours on tailwheel. How much have you done so far, Roy? <laughs> One. <laughs> well, it's a start. 900 hours. <laughs> yeah. Every hour counts. Yeah. But, right. um, you know, we, we have a certain degree of flexibility on those requirements, but we found that 
One. That, that's <laughs> a certain degree of flexibility. <laughs> but we found that's a good place to start. So when, so when Second World War pilots with mm. 19, 20 hours got in one of those things, yeah. I mean, how the hell did they cope? So the idea was they'd have about 50 hours in Tiger Moth, so maybe another 50 in something like a Miles Master, and right. then into the, the Spitfire at an it's operational training unit. 15 No, 5-0 was the plan. Yeah. Um, in practice, particularly in the spring of 1940, there weren't many hours to go around, yeah. and they couldn't get hold of Spitfires to train people on. So you had very low hours people getting into these aeroplanes, mm-hmm. but then there was a war on, and yeah. there were thousands of them. So yeah. um, but, I mean, different I, times. I would find it daunting with... 10,000 hours mm. myself. Um, to be a 20 hour, 30 hour newbie to get in one of those. It must, have been, time, it must still, have been terrifying. Yeah. There were no two seaters. Yeah. So, you know, the first time you had to land it by yourself. Yeah. Um, and there was a war on. So yeah. you knew this, you knew what the, the goal was. Yeah. So it must have been, yeah. It was on the job training, wasn't it? For those it who made it and they past were young. the first. Yeah. They were young, weren't they? Yeah. But they did have a load of accidents. And these days we can't really afford. Yeah. That's that same amount of attrition. Yeah. No, and landings in particular were interesting for them because everyone up until that point had been used to flying fixed landing mm. gear aircraft, so they quite often would come in with wheels up because they it was something that they just weren't used to. Yeah, they had were, to lower the gear. There were lots of new aspects. You know, the Spitfire was cutting edge in many different um, areas. So, so yeah, there were lots of things, lots of potential hazards to trip yourself up on. Jim, you've got over a hundred types to your name multiple hours on many of them. Not quite sure, looking at how young you are, how you've managed that. But is it possible to say where the Spitfire would sit in that list in terms of the favourites? Firstly, that's very kind of you to say those (laughs) things, and I'm glad it's a podcast and not TV, otherwise the listeners would would work you out. But um, the Spitfire is in the top two. Um, for sure. It's probably at the top of the pile, not only because of um, you know, the, the affection the British nation has for the aircraft, but just the way it flies. It's, it's an amazing machine. Um, the other aircraft that's very near the top is a German aeroplane from the 30s, I know, <laughs> called a Booker Jungmeister, oh, yes. Yes, which yes. is just a delightful aerobatic biplane. Wow. Yeah, but um, yeah, the Spitfire probably pips it. Goodness me, I've never heard that comparison before. Well, they're two very different aeroplanes, mm. but the Jungmeister's handling is is just amazing. Something else. And and in terms of, you talk about the the love and affection the British public has for the Spitfire, mm. as do its pilots. And talking to World War Two pilots who've flown it, they all say what a beautiful machine it was to fly. Is that really the case, or has everyone just got a little bit carried away with their enthusiasm for the aeroplane? No, it really is the case. It's practically viceless in the air. Um, it has its foibles on the ground, but I'm sure we'll cover those later. <laughs> um, and it's a delight to fly. It's a very fast, slippery aeroplane, so converting height to speed and back again is effortless. Um, you just have to think your way around the sky in it, really. Can you stop it if you need to? As in, slow it down, is it? Absolutely, yeah. It's, 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 you need to plan that. Yeah. So if I'm coming back into the circuit at Goodwood, say, mm-hmm. um, I can't just barrel in from 3,000 feet and expect to be able to be at a speed where I can put the wheels down downwind. So I need to think ahead and manage the speed, much as you do in an airliner, yeah. but um, in, in a different way. Wow. And 
Gerra, you have been in the back of a Spitfire with Jim. Well, not with Jim. He was in the front. <laughs> so <laughs> it was. It was a tight so squeeze as it was. <laughs> but it was... Um, it was... I'd I said this at the time. Saying, <laughs> I watched the video of you and I stopped when you said, the stick keeps hitting my belly. <laughs> <laughs> You can't have to say that. <laughs> was there a G limitation on his flight purely because of the back stick he could kick? No comment. <laughs> Not from where I was sitting. Uh, Jim, it was. I, I was lucky enough to, to be given uh, um, my flight with you in the Spitfire as a, as, a, as a 50th birthday present. And it was honestly the best day and the best thing I've ever done. It was. Uh, as getting married to your wife, from apart, from, from, apart from that and having children. But aside from those things, it was, I didn't really know what to expect. I was quite nervous. I wasn't quite sure if I was looking forward to it or not. Mm. And, and just because it was such a, a strange thing to do mm. from my normal life. But once we got to, uh, to Leon Solent, it was a cracking day. It was a beautiful summer's day. And we had the briefing and everything. We had told how to fall out of the aircraft, yes. um, should there be a problem, uh, and, and given us all the safety drills. And that was daunting but exciting and then to actually get out into the aircraft and then sort of squeeze myself into it be strapped in I just remember my heart was absolutely pounding and then off we went and then I tried to I just remember that it was an emotional sensory overload and I tried it? it was impossible to but I tried to get every bit of it into me and it was I was looking around and I was talking to you and I was looking at the instruments and you couldn't take it all in. It was too much to take in a one thirty-minute flight. And and as we've said in the past, you know, then landing back at uh, 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 and getting out of the aircraft, and you said, "Very matter frankly, how was that for you?" And I, and I started to say, thinking I'd manage. That was absolutely amazing. And I, I couldn't get through my sentence because <laughs> I was completely choked up. It was, I completely couldn't understand it. it. It caught me out totally. And it's not an uncommon reaction. But the wonderful thing about this job is we get to share this amazing experience with, with people who otherwise wouldn't get to see any of this. It and, was an incredible privilege. And hopefully the video as well, you can um, play it back and see some yeah. of the detail that you missed at the time. I, I watched it back properly for the first time, actually. I, I left it for ages, I don't know why. I sort of wanted to just rem remind myself last night before we did this. I watched it back and it, it still gave me goosebumps. And uh, I even talk about it now, I actually feel quite emotional. It was, it, I think it's everything to do with the, the aeroplane, as you said about flying it, and as you said, Rob, about its place in our history. But it's, it's, it's such an amazing thing anyway, as a piece of engineering, as, a, as an iconic piece of British history, and what it did. And then to be able to go in it, it was totally overwhelming. And it was really incredible. So thank you. And to do what we did, and to take the spit. I mean, I've flown one. I can say I've flown one. Over the channel as well. Uh, yeah. Elliptical wings over the channel. Did, you can't did you actually it. do that? I didn't. Can is that what yeah. people actually get yeah. the chance to fly? At? Absolutely. Wow. I, I didn't do anything. I flew it straight yeah. and more or less level. <laughs> I went up and down a bit. I pulled a left turn and a right turn, yeah. and then Jim said, "I have control," and I said, "You have control." Didn't really want to let go. The stick continued to hit my belly as, as I sort of tried to. And then we did a barrel roll, a victory roll, and a loop, and a loop, and a loop, wow. and it was incredible. For anybody who wants to do that, start saving. Is there, is there anybody who can't do it? Do you ever have unsuitable passengers? I mean, I'm not going to say about weight. I'm just talking about sort of from a mental point of view of people who can't. While we do have weight and height restrictions, the yeah. bottom line for us from a safety perspective is you've got to be able to get out of yeah. the airplane if you had to. Mm -hmm. um, so that. You know, 
when people arrive, we assess their ability to to take on board the um, the safety information mm-hmm. and act on it. Um, so we very rarely have to turn people down, but um, but if we had to, that would be desperately disappointing, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it just? Um, and, and the first of my two flights in the Spitfire, which seemed to be totally <laughs> overlooked through all of this, I remember sitting for which you were paid, for which I was paid, even um, sitting in in that cockpit, and the guy saying, "Right, if you do have to bail out, here's how the cockpit canopy opens." And it wasn't one of these bubble teardrop mm. can- canopies; it was it was like the original front okay. canopy. And um, saying, aim for the trailing edge. Oh, did you have that as well? Yeah. Aim for the trailing edge of the main wing. Otherwise, <laughs> your head will hit the tailplane and that would be bad. And he said, um, just remember your seat buckles. You've got a seat buckle and one is a parachute bu- uh, buckle. Remember which is which. And I was looking, they were so worn out. This wasn't Boltby. This wasn't Boltby. <laughs> the, the buckles were so worn out, I honestly couldn't tell which was the seat and which was the parachute canopy. So well, I just, right, you? <laughs> you don't want to make too, too many mistakes. But you were wearing a, a full bone dome, weren't you? Because I, I asked yeah. you yeah. what yeah. you thought of the sound of the engine once you're sitting behind yeah. it. But you said you couldn't really tell because you were wearing your, your bone dome. Yes, I mean you you can feel it as much as yeah. uh, as as hearing, I suppose, and I, did, I didn't have anything to compare it to, obviously. But no. I mean, yes, yeah, so you get the massive sense of it, and obviously when we started the engine. Um, the, only, the only reason I ask is I was wearing a little leather flying helmet, oh, and really? and it actually was quite a disappointing sound from when you were outside. It sounded a bit more like a tractor. It's very when, different. In it is different, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, that's a sound. Are you sure you weren't in a tractor? <laughs> I think it was. It was no, it was definitely a spiffer. Definitely a spiffer. Yeah. No, it was a it's quite a sort of raw sound whereas you, you didn't quite get that purr mm. that you seem to get when you're when you're listening from outside. I think a lot of the external experience is hearing it roar past you, but when you're, you know, strapped to it, yeah. it's more of a constant in Do you still get a kick out of it, Jim? I mean I'm sure I'm sure you do. Every time. Do you really? Yeah, without fail. Yeah, I have to pinch myself every time. Wow. It, is, it is in the list of like top jobs in the world. It's, it's not bad. Yeah. And what are the kind of experiences that people come to you with? I imagine a lot of people who, I mean, you have to say, but well, we all paid for Jeremy to go up in it. All his friends and family contribute. He doesn't have any friends. So we had to contribute a lot of money between us to, to pay for him to go up. But, but, uh, um, what sort of experiences do you find people have? Some of them come because they have a, a personal or, or family association with the Spitfire? We get all kinds of different people coming, but um, a lot of it is, um, is bucket lists that um, have yet to be fully ticked off. So people in their 60s and 70s who are just, um, just looking to you know, cross everything off the list. <laughs> and all the way through to uh, teenagers we've had whose dads are flying in aeroplanes alongside them. So... Mm-hmm. You know, we get the full cross section, and um, most people are overcome by it. Um, as you've said, it is a sensory overload flying in one. Um, so I'd say about twenty to thirty percent of the people are definitely moist around the eye when they <laughs> land. Um, but what it does give you, you can watch the films, watch, read the books. You've got a frame of reference to try and understand what it was like for the um, the nineteen year olds mm. back in nineteen forty. Mm. Mm. After we'd uh, done our flight, Jim, I went back and actually listened on, on, on uh, uh, you know, as, a, as an audible book 
um, to First Light, the Jeffrey mm. Lynn, which I had read many years before. Yeah. And I, I listened to it again. And, and I mean, obviously, my experience was in no way comparable, but it did, as you said, it gives you a, a point of reference. And it was, I think it, it's an amazing book anyway, mm. but it, it even more brought it to life just because you could just imagine it being up in it and, and you, know, you can't imagine being shot at or being in a, in a war environment but it was uh, it really I think it really brought the book to life and, uh, and that book First Light um, is the best book I've read for putting you in the seat at the time um, so his description yeah. of being over the North Sea trying to hunt a dornier in an outer yeah. cloud yeah yeah it's um, very very well written it's a brilliant book mm. I'm just looking at the map behind you, actually. I'm, I'm looking at the uh, the Isle of Wight and, and you know, on Solent and just imagining where I where, where where we flew flew around the Needles and back along the the south, southern point. And That's I right. Took control just over the sort of uh, eastern end of um, of the Isle of Wight and we flew sort of northeasterly. And then you took control. Well, we were actually trying to find. <laughs> yes, got it. <laughs> I was headed for Guernsey. But... <laughs> and then and then you took control for a little bit further east and we we did our our barrel roll. And our, and our uh, victory roll, and we headed back west, and then did the loop. My ridiculous grin. Yeah, well, I don't blame you. Can't you can't avoid it? It's it, as you say, it's a hugely emotional experience. Jim, all these um, all these two seaters are, are Mark Nines, I think. I'm yes, right, so right. or converted Mark yeah. Nines, <clears throat> which it, it, it's part of the Spitfire story, and, and what a brilliant airframe it was from the outset in terms of being able to develop it. Mm. I was lucky enough to, to uh, interview Alex Henshaw, one of the Spitfire yes. test pilots, many years ago, and asked him what his favourite mark was. I know you've flown a few marks of Spitfire, so before I tell you what his answer was, what would your answer be? I've only flown the 5 and the 9, okay. but if you look at the development of the Spitfire, um, it started off as a, almost a light aircraft, really, with a 1,000 or so horsepower, and it developed into a fire-breathing monster with well over 2,000 horsepower. Yeah. Um, during that development, as the performance increased, the handling inevitably got a bit worse as the aircraft got heavier. So I think the knee and the curve in terms of performance and handling, people generally say it's a Mark V. Um, I've flown the 5 and the 9, and the 5 is delightful. Um, the 9 is no slouch, <laughs> um, but the 5 just feels a little bit lighter. It's, um, it really talks to you. I'm just trying to look at my notes to see what... I think he said almost exactly the same thing, actually. Uh, it was well, the that's Mark lucky. Well, <laughs> <laughs> you passed the test. It was the Mark V with the 25 boost engine. Oh, Whatever that means. Fine. He said the lighter and the more power, the better it is, which is pretty much what you were saying. Yes, absolutely. I also asked him the question, is there a point within the Spitfire lineage where, in his view, and I'd like to ask your opinion on this, it's no longer really... A pure Spitfire. You certainly have to. I haven't flown the the Griffin engine variants, but I've heard people talk about them a lot, and it's a different, it's a different beast. Um, not only does the engine go the other way, yeah. but you've got twice as much power to handle mm -hmm. in an airframe that wasn't potentially designed for all that power. Yeah. Um, so I don't think that the power had to increase to counter the developing threat. From, is the Falk Wolf, was it? And the V1s? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So the Spitfire needed to develop in that direction. Um, did it ever become not a Spitfire? I don't think so. Um, but I think everyone flying the Mark 14s and the 19s probably looked back um, with a tear in their eye at the Mark 5s. <laughs> yes. Um, 
but you know, recognizing that um, you needed all that power. Yeah. Well, you're in good company because that's pretty much what he said. <laughs> he said as soon as the Griffin engine was introduced, which I think came into the Mark 12, it's probably the first type to have the Griffin. But he said once that was on board, he thought it wasn't really a, a true pure Spitfire yeah. anymore. Yeah. I'll buy that. <laughs> <laughs> if a Mark 14 flew against a Mark 1, Mark 2, mm. who would win? The Mark II would outturn the 14 yeah. because it's got this pretty much the same wing or exactly the same wing and less weight. Yeah. So you can you can turn better. But the 14 would, would have the thrust. So they would want to fight in a very different way. Yeah. The, the, the earlier version would, would want to have a turning fight mm -hmm. and the 14 would yeah, have nice. slashing attacks and taking it vertical a lot. Uh, the 14 would probably win. Right. It's interesting you mentioned the wing because each type could have numerous types of wing. I think I'm right in saying, I mean, you could have a 5B. I mean, weren't yes, there the, mostly a, B, C, D, E? Uh, that was down to yes. armament arm, rather than wing shape, was it? Yeah, so the A was all 303 machine guns. And then the, by the time the C came along, that was a universal wing. You could have 20 mil cannon and the 303s. And then the E we've got in the hangar has uh, 50 cal machine guns as well as 20 mil. But the 303s have been deleted. So we're getting into a bit of a... Um, a caliber fest here. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. And did you have you ever flown a clip wing? Yes, the the Mark V I fly is clip wing. Uh, then does that is that for increased rotation? Yeah, it does. So um, a normal wing you can do a three sixty degree roll in about five seconds, and the mm -hmm. clip wing takes it down to about four seconds. So if you're fighting one, that yeah. um, that that would make all the and difference. And the penalty for that? Is Not noticeable, to be honest. Um, in yes. which case, why didn't all future variants just retain the clipped wing? I'm glad they didn't. I'll caveat I... mine not noticeable with <laughs> I don't fly them on the edge. I don't fight them when we're looking to preserve them these right. days. So yeah, I'm sure if you had to max perform the aircraft all the time, you would yeah. notice the difference. Yeah. But um, for display flying, you, you can't really tell. No. There's, a, there's a slightly less lift, clearly, in a, in a clipped wing aircraft, so it's not going to turn quite as well. Going back to its performance as a fighter <clears throat> excuse me, during the war, was part of its theory down to the fact that um, towards the end of the war, certainly, the Germans were just running out of pilots. Their, their, their pilots were so badly, not bad, maybe badly, undertrained that their, the rate of attrition was always going to favour the, the Allies. And the certainly the, the Messerschmitt 109 was a real handful on the ground, mm. so a lot of their attrition was from landing accidents. Mm. So I think they got through a fair few pilots just because of that. Whereas the Spitfire tended to hold on to its its pilots, so it was a lot more forgiving aeroplane. Um, but throughout the war, there was a, a leapfrog in um, development, as there always is with um, when you're fighting people. Um, so a Fort Wolf would best a, um, a Spitfire Mark V, whereas the Mark IX came along with a two-stage supercharger, slightly more horsepower, and that was better than the Fort Wolf at the time. So there was that continual leapfrogging. I wouldn't say the Spitfire had an advantage throughout the war, but no. maintained it where it could. Okay. Yeah. I mean, the Spitfire itself, you, you touched on this earlier, mm. was a bit of a hand, is a bit of a handful on the ground, isn't it? Yeah, it can be. Um, you've got 1,700 horsepower in these Mark 5s, sorry, Mark 9s, and um, the throttle travel is maybe six to eight inches. So you know, that's a lot of power to control with a small lever. Um, and there's the effect of that power on the airframe. You need to anticipate all the torque and precession and slipstream, and there's a lot going on. So particularly if the wind isn't favorable, um, or you're in a hard runway, which is a bit less forgiving, 
or you haven't flown it in a little while. You know, all these things can um, prey on your mind. And yeah. do you, sorry, do you have ground wind limits as well as there sort of take off and landing wind limits? Um, we do, yes. So there, you can taxi in a higher wind um, than we would choose to land right. in. Um, mm. If it gets much higher than that, then we sit someone on the tail mm-hmm. uh, to taxi around yep. and try not to get airborne in that configuration. <laughs> did that to lady? It did, yes. Margaret, oh, can't think of her name. It was AB910, which is with the Battle Britain Memorial Flight, I think, was the Spitfire in question that she she became she airborne. Remarkably good <laughs> well, you know. Almost we are an aviation podcast. <laughs> we are. I can't <laughs> remember her name. Margaret Lockwood. No, she was an actress, wasn't she? Yeah. Anyway, Margaret Hallwood, something like that. Anyway, it's been quite the ride. <laughs> I mean, it's it's staggering to to believe that it ever really happened, or that mm. the pilot was able to get airborne because yeah. the 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 balance and the handling of the aircraft. Well, I think he noticed pretty early on. In, he must have done. <laughs> yeah, he must have done. It's a pretty brief circuit, I think. Is it a bolt experience? You could. <laughs> <laughs> are you volunteering? <laughs> That would never get off the ground. We need a crash test dummy. Yes. We've certainly got a dummy. Yes. But we'll have more from Jim in a moment. You're listening to Top Landing Gear. And however you are listening, please do leave a review. And if you're tempted to subscribe to the podcast, then so much the better. But we'd love you to join us, be part of the conversation, and make the most of our regular feature, Ask James, where you can ask our resident expert anything you like about aviation. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Top Landing Gear. For now, though, let's hear more from our special guest, Jim Schofield. Jamie, just aside from the Spitfire, and on your long list of aircraft you have flown, is there anything you'd still like to fly that you haven't yet? Um, Puma. Sticking in the Second World Puma. War. Puma. 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 <laughs> No, no, not, no, not so much for you, man. It's a great answer. Well, you... <laughs> no one cares, James. Triple seven. No, um, I would love to fly aircraft like the Sea Fury and the Bearcat, just because they were the you know the pinnacle of Second World War performance. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then jets came along. Yeah. Mm. Um, so definitely those two. Um, from the First World War perspective. Um, no, I'm happy with the SE5A. That's a delightful aeroplane. <laughs> Although I haven't um, tried any or got the opportunity to fly any rotary engine aircraft yet, and that's a discipline that's... This uh, is where the engine itself rotates? It does. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you've got that whole spinning mass up the front. <laughs> which is, yeah. I can't believe anyone thought that was ever a good idea. No, quite. <laughs> and I think your intuition would have served you well. Yeah. And then from a jet perspective... I think the Phantom. Love to uh, fly the Phantom. Yeah. yeah. Oh, the, the Lightning was always on my I mean, cause I mm. grew up with this the book, the Ladybird book of airplanes, and inside the front cover was an expanded um, picture of the Lightning. You're yeah. talking about the English Electric. The English Electric. Mm. Like, this man has flown yes. the most recent. In fact, you were on the, the well, the test team for the F-35? Yes. Yeah, this, is, this is uh, Jim reporting. Jim, right. sorry, yeah, yeah. Jim. Yeah. Jim. Sorry, yeah. It's it's a podcast. Podcast. Sorry, sorry. Yeah, I beg your pardon. You make snow. Yeah. Jim, Jim Roy, Schofield, as opposed to James Carter, Jim Schofield uh, flew the F-35 as part of the test programme before the RAF And that was the, the highlight of my professional career. Wow. It was an amazing machine in, in every sense and so totally different from... The Spitfire we've been talking about, um, the Spitfire, visceral, you're concentrating on the pure handling of the aeroplane, whereas these days that's done for you. 
So the handling is and should be really easy, which means you've got all this capacity now, mental capacity to concentrate on all the information they're mm. just displaying to you. Mm-hmm. So it's a, a totally different kettle of fish. A long way from pure flying. Yes. Mm. Can you take what you know about, say, the Spitfire or any other aircraft, does that inform things that you, that you may do with it or in your mentally how you think about things or is it is it so far removed that it just does not compare in any way? I think when things go wrong in any aeroplane, you draw on that bucket of experience, um, which could be books you've read or accident reports you've read. Um, so I wouldn't discount something I've learned in the Spitfire, um, some small nugget meaning that I'd handle an emergency better in some other aeroplane. But um, And even accidents you've had, James? Um, yes, they all help me. Okay. <laughs> I've, I've learned never to make the same mistake twice. Just keep making new mistakes. Yeah, there you are. But there are so many out there. Oh, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, to, sorry to choose from. So, if, I've asked uh, uh, Jim, um, mm. sorry, James, I've asked Jim uh, what's on his bucket list. What, what, I mean, your bucket list might be a little bit longer because James uh, just yeah. covered too many. But what, what would you... Well, obviously, I mean, without saying the Spitfire, one day I'd love to find the Spitfire. Um, and my CV's actually just gone into Boltby. They've sent it back for some reason, I don't know why. Um, We're running out of toilet paper. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'll send it again! We're not editing Yeah, so, um, but jet-wise, uh, I said the Lightning, the old English electric Lightning, just, just because it was that iconic thing when I was yeah. growing up a long time ago. Um, and the 25 minutes fuel it had, it would have been absolutely yes. fantastic to, yes. uh, to go up to 30,000 feet and then glide back home again. Um, Phantom, um, again, I followed one around the circuit at Cranwell once and just thought, wow. What were you in? The Ticana. Oh, right. It was in the last days of the Phantom when I was training on the Ticana. Oh, wow. Um, and, I mean, Concorde without saying, mm. I think just to flown yes. it, just yes. to have been even in the flight deck for, for, for a flight and it would have been fantastic. No helicopters in your list. <laughs> I've flown all the best helicopters, the Wessex and the Puma. <laughs> yes. oh. um, and uh, yeah, no, the helicopters are. Uh, there's no. I don't think there's anything about a particular helicopter that really gets you. A lot of people like the Chinook, um, but I've met people who fly it. <laughs> <laughs> so, so this is typical Air Force <laughs> chat, isn't um, it? So, and, and I've done, as I've been more recently fixed wing. I'd certainly look towards fixed wing types. But historic aircraft, you know, to fly any aircraft, it has its its differences and its vices and its wonderful things about it. Uh, and I think just the, any experience you can get as many as many types yeah. as you can just makes you a, a more rounded pilot overall. I was used to say the when people ask me what my favourite aeroplane was, I'd say whichever one I'm in, as yeah. long as it's not a Jaguar. <laughs> oh, really? What was wrong with the Jaguar? Well, I don't want to alienate <laughs> so many of the listeners. No, it was just, um, I've done it with Chinook already. I survived about 150 hours in it, and I, it was it needed more thrust, needed more wing, uh, and those are two pretty critical. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah, it was. A, it actually needed the curvature of the earth mm, to get off the ground, didn't it? Wow. Yeah. Had but, the most complex landing gear, folding yeah. landing gear, swiveled and... Yeah, but, goodness, they've got a well. ground run on one yesterday, haven't they, I believe? There was uh, oh, there? somewhere. Yes, yeah. Some social media just fired one up and mm. oh, wow. but hats off to the guys who got so much out of it on the front line yeah. because I but it was a training aircraft originally, wasn't it? It was it designed, as, designed yeah. as a training aircraft, yeah. French were nuts. And then they decided to put loads and loads of bombs on it, mm. uh, not turning to the engines. Yeah. Had something about the TSR2 about it, Jaguar always felt yeah, there was that yeah. wing, it, it looked right, it, it, yeah, yeah. 
Just going back to the F-35 Lightning, mm. Jim, you also flew the Harrier. Yes. And I'd love to know the difference operationally and in terms of affection, because I think every aviation enthusiast has huge affection for the Harrier, and, and we all miss it terribly. So operationally, the Harrier was um, fantastic at what it did, which was close air support. So, you know, attacking targets close to your own troops and then um, landing in a field site, rearming and doing it again and again and again. Um, F-35 is a completely different kettle of fish, supersonic, stealthy, stovel. Um, it can see everything that's out there and not much can see it. So mm. it's, it's a great place to be when you're fighting a well any war. Um, <clears throat> in terms of when you're flying the aeroplane, I'll, I'll never forget being in the Harrier certainly in the early days, just worrying about the landing. So people said, did you enjoy that flight? Well, I was kind of worrying about the landing a bit too much. <laughs> because the one thing you could guarantee was if you looked away from directly out the front at any point in the Harrier when it was slow, and then you look back again, it would have killed. It would have tried to kill you in mm. the intervening period. Um, so it, it wasn't looking after you, and you had to do everything by the book. If you cut any corners, it would generally slap you, and you might get away with it. Whereas F-35 is looking after you. So... It'll level off um, if you let go of the, um, the stick in the hover. It won't let you decelerate below the point at which you run out of wing lift and you would start to descend in a Harrier. It will hold that speed for you. It's, it's looking after you, so it's a, it's a much happier place mm. to be. Does that mean that the pilots flying the Harrier, as opposed to the F-35, for example, were actually regarded as more skillful, or is that an unfair comparison to make? Because you're I think, to think about. Um, it's a different skill set, and the recruitment policies had to change as a result of that. So the Harrier needed stick and rudder people who could um, also take in a lot of information over the radio and build a good mental picture and, and, and act on that. Whereas F-35, you know, you're listening all the time as well, but it's a much more visual scenario on the screens in front of you and you're trying to assimilate the information in a different way. That's probably a lot more information. There's loads of it, yeah. Um, so it's it's very different. That is a question to lead on slightly from that. <coughs> My sons <coughs> all want to follow me into the Air Force. One's applying, no one's ready to apply. Is there going to be a fighter pilot job in 30 years' time? <laughs> I think um, throughout history there have been several times when people have predicted the end of manned fighters mm -hmm. um, or the end of um, everything was going to go to missiles so yeah. we don't need a gun anymore. And every time we've... Um, looked at what could be out there and been optimistic about how quickly all this technology is going to come in and remove the pilot. I think it's um, it hasn't quite turned out that way. I would say at the moment, though, no, we're seeing driverless cars, we're seeing you know, um, personal e-taxis mm -hmm. and all sorts. So I think technology has got to the stage now where this sort of thing is becoming more of a reality. Yeah. Um, and there are some tasks that removing the pilot is achievable for so um, the old dirty dangerous stuff um, you know we've seen we've got, we've got um, unmanned air vehicles for that currently um, but for making snap decisions on the scene when you're taking in loads of different information um, and also being able to well it's difficult to remove the pilot from yeah. that stuff and it's also difficult to control something remotely um, with enough speed yeah. so it's difficult is what yeah. I'd say yes but if you're trying to get an unmanned vehicle to um, fight, it's got to make an awful lot of decisions. Yeah. I think we need to stick to getting cars to drive down roads safely first. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But uh, we'll get there, I'm sure. Just not yet. I totally agree. Just returning to the Spitfire, 
Um, do you think with so many now restored to flying condition, be it replicas or restoration, and that's probably a, a conversation for another time, do you think it in any way waters down the brand, for want of a better expression? It's an interesting question. Um, I think you've got to look at supply and demand. Um, and where there's demand for building more Spitfires, people will, will fill that niche. And if you look at, um, we built just under 23,000 Spitfires and Seafires. There are probably 250 or so left, of which 55 or so are still flying globally. Mm. So it's not like they're common as muck. Um, <laughs> I think there's still room for more. I don't think it's watering the brand down. Even if they're not authentic in terms of having been World War II veterans necessarily? It's interesting that um, a lot of aircraft get called replicas, um, but when, it, when you look at aircraft like the Spitfire, people don't tend to use that terminology. Um, there are loads of different shades of um, well, aircraft with different backgrounds. Obviously, you've got almost authentic um, airplanes that have barely been touched since the war, and then you've got pretty much new builds. But um, but we don't tend to talk of that um, terminology, maybe to preserve their prominence. <laughs> Do I think the brand's being watered down? No. no. More. <laughs> and they've all got an authentic Merlin engine in. Absolutely. So that adds... And on a similar line, we've got quite a few two-seaters mm. now, conversions. Um, bearing in mind that part of the Spitfire's appeal is its immaculate lines, its beautiful lines, the old two-seater does kind of detract from that with those bubble canopies for the, for the rear cockpit so you can fit people up like my brother in it. It's amazing to be able to share the experience, though. And the more we can share the experience with people, the more they'll want to help preserve these aircraft for future generations. Um, so I think it's important that, that people get to fly in them, see them living and breathing. Mm. Um, I think supply and demand dictates there's you know a natural level of two-seaters, and I think we're about there at the moment. Yeah. I think so, yeah. And you can always convert them back again afterwards. Yeah, true, true. <laughs> You were also involved in the Silver Spit, which is here in the hangar, in getting that ready for its astonishing round-the-world yes. flight. What sort of problems did you encounter from the outset? I mean, a Spitfire, any fighter aircraft, has a limited endurance. Mm. So this thing, I don't know what the longest leg for this was anyway, but to get one of these to fly around the world, and it did it pretty much perfectly, it is quite some achievement. Absolutely. So a, um, a vanilla single-seat Spitfire has about 85 gallons of fuel. Um, for the Silver Spitfire, they um, put some extra fuel tanks in, which took it up to just over 200 gallons, so wow. quite an increase. The longest leg we did um, while we were testing it before it went on its trip was about four and a half hours. And for the round-the-world um, experience itself, then uh, I think three and a half hours was the longest they did. Yeah. And what's it like for a pilot to be in a Spitfire cockpit? For a six-foot-four pilot, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm thinking of me here, Yeah, um, two hours was about my limit of, right. of endurance. So the four and a half hours, um, I spent two and a half of that screaming <laughs> and trying to adjust, you know, while not loosening the straps too much, trying, yes. to, trying to adjust my position to make it a bit more comfortable. It's not too bad. It's uh, it's not like a motorbike. What's or, the fuel burn rate of Oh, so in the cruise, yeah. 40 gallons an hour at 225 miles an hour, roughly. Right, roughly, yeah. So 40 gallons an hour. Yeah. yeah. Um, Do you fly flat? Are you flying at a comfortable speed? Are you throttle right forward? No, it's it's the minimum speed, the engine, the minimum power you can get out of the engine without um, 
fouling the plugs really. Right. So um, yeah, it's barely ticking over. Okay. And what do you think that flight achieved? Well, um, they did something no one else has done before in as much as they flew a Spitfire around the world. Um, they got to showcase British engineering and they got to reunite the Spitfire with parts of the world that, at least in part, owe um, you know, the success of, of the 1940s to that aircraft. Mm. So um, threefold, really. <laughs> but they achieved it. Yeah. yeah. Which was it's uh, absolutely astonishing. not a given. No. no, indeed. And what will happen to Gertie now? <clears throat> Um, lots of different options. I hope we get to um, show it to the public this season, um, but I don't know what the future is at the moment. That's, mm-hmm. that's in discussion. Jim, you have had the most extraordinary career to date. You've flown over 100 types, pre-First World War up to the F-35 Lightning, the latest aircraft. Can you just outline how you've managed to have a career quite like this with so many different types in your logbook. It's better to be lucky than good, I think they say. <laughs> so, um, is it? <laughs> I always wanted to fly airplanes, so it was it was easy from my perspective. From the age of four, I thought, right, I want to fly airplanes. And I saw school as, as standing in my way. Um, but I finally got into the Air Force. It took me four goes to get in. They really didn't want me, but I managed to <laughs> persuade them otherwise. Okay. Yeah, you're better than me. And then um, the Air Force standard training, Takano, Hawk, Harrier. Um, at the end of my tour on the Harrier, I decided I wanted to be a test pilot. So I went to test pilot school in 2004. That was year long. They called it the divorce course, but we survived. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and then I ended up testing Harriers and flying Jags and Alpha Jets for a couple of years. Helped introduce the Harrier GR9. Wow. Went back to the test pilot school to be the um, the principal tutor fixed wing, so like the, the chief instructor there for a couple of years. And then I did a deal with the devil and took a staff job, so a desk job oh. at High Wycombe, because it was an F-35 related yeah. job, oh. and I knew there was an F-35 test job that I wanted. When, when would this have been? Uh, this would have been 2008, 2009. Right. And then, and 10, and then in 2011... Uh, it paid off, and I went out to the States to test F-35B and C. Was that when it was still in development in the States? or had Yeah. So it had been flying for about 18 months, I think, by the time I got over there. Um, and I got to fly the F-18 as well. So back-to-back, um, being able to compare those two aeroplanes was fascinating because the F-18 is no slouch, but the F-35 is a different generation. Um, and then I came back to the UK to do a, a wing commander job as the F-35 requirements manager. And it took me about six months to work out what that meant. <laughs> <laughs> and um, after that, I left, joined British Airways, um, flew the uh, the little Airbus around Europe for Gosh. a couple of years. And then... I wish you were my pilot. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> and then this job came up um, as chief pilot at the Bulby Flight Academy, and I couldn't wow. say no to a full-time Spitfire job. That is these jobs just don't exist. They don't. No, exactly. But just um, exist. on the back of the test pilot flying, I met a guy who um, was had a, an aerobatic team, so I started flying for him, doing formation displays since 2005. And then I started flying with the Shuttleworth collection with their vintage types in 2010. So, um, yeah, it's just been, I've been so lucky. Any regrets? <laughs> <laughs> not enough pure time. Yeah, not enough pure time. I think that's probably firmly in your place. Beautiful, Jim. 
Thank you so much for your time. Not at all. Absolutely great fantastic. talking with you. Well, a huge thanks to Jim Schofield for some fascinating insights. And I'm delighted to say that he's rather rashly agreed to be a guest on future podcasts when we'll just have to ask him more about that Booker Jungmeister Spitfire comparison. Our thanks also to Boltby for looking after us on our visit to Goodwood. Now, remember, you can get in touch with us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at Top Landing Gear, where you can also leave your questions for our expert, James Carter. We'll also post when our next episode will be up and running. And however you're listening to us, please do leave a review, especially if you've enjoyed it. Thanks for listening. Bye for now. And Jim, obviously, this will all be edited by him. Yes. And played into the um, into the eventual podcast as a, as, as an item on its own. So, it doesn't matter if we stumble, fluff. That's the worst introduction to an interview. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Science alone. Yeah, he's not done this before, or at least for a while.